evil. It's infanticidist, feminist, homosexualist, transsexual, and energetically anti-Christian. We all agree about that. No decent or high-minded or even half-minded Christian can deny this. The question is whether America can be saved. This is one of the most important shows I'll do in a long time. Although this proposition stretches our minds into the future, it involves intellectual legwork surrounding the past. Specifically, the question was, was America hardwired at its framing to become a transsexual tyranny, the transsexual tyranny that we see now? Is what we see, in other words, Every time we turn on the TV or set foot in the town square, a 1776 or a 1788 fait accompli, was it set to be this way all along? Most faithful Catholics answer yes. Just today, the folks at the New Polity Institute are hosting a summit, June 3rd, yesterday and June 4th today, entitled is America a tyranny at the Franciscan University of Steubenville? One of the event's architects, Jacob Imam, who's a friend of this show and has been on this show, for, for my part, he's a friend, told me that in his estimation, all but two of the event's speakers attribute America's tyranny to its framing. Remember, founding is 1776, Declaration of Independence framing is 1788 when we ratified the Constitution. I, I, what Jacob said is a proportionate and representative number when we look at the fraction of faithful Catholics who think the way these guys think, that our current problems hail from the past, were a fait accompli from the perspective of the past. Most good Catholics and decent Americans have been led to this post-liberal belief in the past five to seven years. It's become vastly popular. Michael Hanby, Gladden Pappin, Adrian Vermeule, Patrick Deneen, and Saurabh Amari are just a few of the Catholic popularizers of the view that if America is now evil, it must have been all along, or it must at least have been wired to be all along. This view is called post-liberalism, and there is natural variation among these folks. Of the five names I mentioned, and I could have named 20 others, four of them are professors. Professors are not known, as I note in my forthcoming book, Don't Go to College, for their truly open-minded engagement of ideas that they find anathema. And the proof is, although I've debated one of these professors, Patrick Deneen, on another YouTube channel, most of them, though I've interacted with almost all of them, and they know me and they know of me, refuse to invite me to their conferences. They don't want to engage the idea. Academia is wrecked. It's a joke. They won't engage. And even another fellow faithful traditional Catholic with a different point of view, even though I agree, America is now a tyranny. Today, forget that. I'm not bitter about it. I have to respond here as... This event, could, do we have a little uh, signpost for the event, Stevie? This event 
which is hailing uh, June 3rd, June 4th, today, going on at Franciscan, I wish them luck. I wish I could interface with them and pose the questions that I'm going to pose to you, parish orphans and retrogrades, as proofs of my point of view that America is evil today, but it was not at its founding. I wish, I wish they could, could hear these and respond to these, and I wish you viewers out there could see them in real time, unable to respond to these. So today, here's the point. I will prove to you why these post-liberal Catholics, even though they're faithful Catholics, are incorrect. Why they are engaging in something called the genetic fallacy. And hopefully, I'll be able to show you why, why, why this is the case. Why does the genetic fallacy have such strong, yes, misleading allure? Strong yet misleading allure, particularly as it regards America. Very divisive issue, big issue. That's what we're going to be doing today. And I guarantee you, parish orphans and retrogrades, I've been interacting with people all week on Twitter, and lots of people have been challenging me. I guarantee at least quia demonstration level proofs of that if you're an Aristotelian or a Thomist, you know what I mean by this. Not, not as a proof in the apodictic Kantian sense. Strong demonstrations that cannot be answered by the post-liberals that are in favor of America's evil now, but it was not at its beginning. It was actually wired to be good. It was wired to be Christian. Just stick with me this show. Now, before I do that, I have, uh, I, this, is, this is what I was going to do a dissertation on back in the day. This is my number one topic. This is the topic of my first book, my real love, Catholic Republic. So it brings me into intellectual la-la land. I have to talk to you really briefly, parish orphans and retrogrades, because you are a generous audience about an affair of the heart. Uh, two days ago, I discovered, along with the rest of my extended family, that my godson, uh, I call him my nephew, he's my first cousin's son. My first cousin is like a brother to me, my first cousin Steve. My godson uh, has leukemia, and it's, as you can imagine, been tearing us apart, tearing the family apart, uh, you know, with, with, with grief. It looks like it's very manageable, the type of leukemia it is. Uh, my cousin lives in, in Portland, uh, my, my cousin and his sister, Jill, who's appeared on the show, actually, with me, when we introduced the Saint Luke Single Society. They both live in Portland. If you could... Five or ten dollars for their GoFundMe page for their son, Theo, who is my, my godson, and he's a, a delightful young dude, five to six years old. It would be amazing. What I encourage whenever I do help you or anyone with a crowdsource funding GoFundMe account or something like it, donor box. Is I tell people, look, you don't want to get in trouble for any kind of trouble for the way that you fly these things. It's actually very important. So the mo and no, one, no one out there is going to be looking to, to bust up a family with a, a, a kid that's got leukemia. But the important thing is to say, look, this is for living expenses. It's impossible at the outset of having a sick kid. We know with Abby, it was our first kid and we were in a foreign country. It's impossible to know how long or how costly, Steph is shaking her head, how long or how costly the ordeal will go. All we know is that the C-word cancer, even in its most manageable species, strikes fear into the heart of parents and 
everyone. So I just I was telling Steve, I'm going to repeat it. Always say under your Go, GoFundMe account, like, hey, this is for living expenses during this event, whatever it is. Um, living expenses, well, you'll never get busted up. So we, we don't know what the medical expenses are going to be. We don't know exactly what the treatment's going to be. They found out it was leukemia two days ago. They found out what type yesterday. And the treatment varies. So all we need to do, those of us who are flying this GoFundMe account, is just to be real square with people. Look, if you could give five, ten, fifteen dollars to this account, it's it's linked to the page and Steph had it up on the screen has it up on the screen now, then that would be amazing because they don't know whether there's gonna be a eighteen month ordeal, two and a half years, five years is that that famous benchmark for the family of cancer patients. It's real tough, but this is a good cat very Catholic family. My my cousin Steve's family. Just a, a really amazing, amazing dude and he's like a brother to me and his son is my godson uh, um so please help young theo curvers at, if you can at all we are so appreciative this audience is so generous and i wouldn't prevail on you unless it were really important as you can imagine it's been quite an eventful time for the gordons over here we, we had had a new kid you're always reminded of the delicacy of life babies i've had seven of them well steph has <laughs> And uh, they're so tiny. It's scary. I go into a, I get relapse of my hypochondria from 10 years ago. Anytime we have a baby. And then this happens two days ago. So please, please, please help out. Thank will you. you. Spe- will you say the, the, the uh, fundraiser name for people on podcast? Yeah. So if you listen to this podcast, uh, okay, it is. Actually, you want to read it? I can't. Use sure. It. Sorry. I, Tim can't see the screen from over here. Um, so if you're listening to the podcast and you can't see the screen, the, the, the fundraiser is on GoFundMe, and you would just type in Help Theo Curvers Beat Leukemia, and it's T-H-E-O-K-U-R-V-E-R-S, Help Theo Curvers Beat Leukemia. Thank you guys so much. All right. Now let's get into the matter. You see... Those post-liberals who assert that the founders and framers have sole blame for our current woes, transsexualist, feminist, homosexualist woes, get to simultaneously aver that their own uh, lack of agency in improving the future obtains. You see what I mean? It's, it's the best of both worlds for the post-liberals because they say, while getting to sound like the more revolutionary party, they are, they are comprehensively revolutionary as concerning the uh, beginnings of America, America's birthday. But at the same time, they don't have to do anything. They don't have to do anything at all. All they do is they say, hey, I want, I want a, a Catholic emperor to just, from sea to shining sea, a continent-wide, maybe even a global Catholic emperor. Wouldn't that be great? They miss out on the point that nationalism is better than globalism, but localism is better than nationalism. They stop short. As nationalism is to globalism, localism is to nationalism. This is Catholic teaching, the Catholic teaching of subsidiarity. We're going to talk a lot about it today, but uh, it's, it's good to get out there as, a, as a, an opening shot. They sound more comprehensively revolutionary than I do. It's easier to sound like, hey, tear it down. Tear it down. That's what I'm saying about college. Tear it down. Tear down the edifice. We need to totally start over. 
it's, it's just they get they get to have the cake and to eat it too. But then they don't have to do anything. They don't have to move states. They don't have to engage the ideas of secession, annulment, uh, you know, nullification, revolution, things like that. And all their urgings for a total genetic redo, they're actually angling for a nanny state central government to accomplish their ends, just like Woodrow Wilson, FDR, LBJ, Obama, or Abraham Lincoln. The five biggest government presidents that we've ever had are those five names. And with the exception of Lincoln, who figures into today's show in quite a way, most conservatives, most Catholics, including these post-liberals, know to, to furrow their brow when they say Wilson, Roosevelt, LBJ, Obama. But they're angling for the same thing, these post-liberals. They just won't tell you. They want a nanny state, huge government, continent-sized republic, which is a contradiction in terms, and the Catholic Church has always rejected it. We'll talk about that in a bit. If they say they want big government that is Catholic, in other words, they can simultaneously, so they think, decry classical liberalism, a much misunderstood concept, and at the same time, neoliberalism, leftism. What we know as leftism is called neoliberalism. Classical liberalism is not leftism. It's a whole other thing. And I'm not a wholesale defender of all classical liberalism. It's misunderstood as a Protestant and Enlightenment doctrine that masquerades and did masquerade at America's founding uh, for the ideas that were really animating early America. The ideas of natural law, natural rights, subsidiarity, virtue ethics in the population, Catholic ideas that are not open to, to Protestant secular, Protestants or secularists. Plus, these post-liberals don't have to do anything but pine for a Catholic king, like I said before. So they get to have their cake and eat it too. It's a very easy intellectual position, although it can't be substantiated, and they cannot answer my questions. This is why... You know, Jacob Imam, very nice man, goes on Matt Fratt a lot. He's been on my show. I think he gets frustrated because I, I ask these questions. We're, we're sending emails back and forth. There is no answer to my question or questions which are Socratic in their lineage. They prove a point. And yet the post-liberals, because there are so many of them, almost all the good Catholics are one shade or another of post-liberal so they figure they have the numbers. Why can't we substantiate our reasoning? It's because this is the, what's wrong with academia. Groupthink is endemic to human beings. If a bunch of people think something, however wrong post-liberalism is, it's trendy right now and people can't get out of its shadow. On the other hand, remember, this is also why groupthink is is popular and, and being the, the lone voice in the crowd is unpopular. My defense of our American beginnings puts the onus on you and me to restore whatever in America can be restored. So for those out there scratching their heads saying, I don't know what a post-liberal is, it just means that the ideas traditionally associated with the American founding are liberalism. Now, to know what a post-liberal is exactly, you have to know what a liberal is, and there are five conflicting definitions. I'm not going to go through those. What I'm telling you is, don't use this word liberal. It, nowadays, a neoliberal is just a leftist. 
A post-liberal is someone that, like a today neo-leftist, favors big government. But a lot of them are good, faithful, traditional Catholics that hate transsexualism, homosexualism, sort of feminism. Um, they just want big government to do it. But they, favor, they figure that all of this talk about liberty, liberalism, liberty, at our founding and framing is Enlightenment, Masonic, maybe Protestant, but it's not Catholic. That's what they figure. Well, they're wrong. My analysis is Catholic. Theirs is not. I'm, I'm getting to the proving so far. This is a longer intro to this show than I've ever done because most people don't follow this stuff too closely. They just assume... 90% of the other Catholics out there have turned post-liberal. They say we just need a Catholic emperor, see the shining sea. Maybe, maybe all the seas in the world. Maybe Catholic globalism, right? If you believe in, in one continent-sized republic, which can never be, that's the opposite of subsidiarity. Why not one globe that's all under a Catholic king, right? They don't want that. They know that's un unpopular. Globalism, as it should be. But nationalism is almost as bad as globalism when the nation is a continent. My analysis is Catholic, theirs is not. It boils down to the question, what is liberalism? Which is a whole other show. They refuse to define it, though, the post-liberals. I say what's much more manageable, what's much more bite-sized, is asking what is liberalism as condemned by the church? What is liberalism from the church's point of view? After all, you can't say you're a post-liberal unless you can accurately define liberal. Post means after or responding to. The term has so many definitions. We're just going to assess from a Catholic perspective what the term liberal means because there have been Catholic condemnations of the term. Okay, here's the first thing you need to know. America's constitutional watchword, its constitutional main idea, was fundamentally flip-flopped, reversed, after the Civil War. No one disputes this. No constitutional lawyers, no constitutional historians, no American historians, no political philosophers that, that, that engage in American political philosophy. No political scientists. I guess that's what Deneen is. He's not a political philosopher, to the best of my recollection. America's constitutional watchword, it's raison d'etre, it's reason for being flip-flopped after the Civil War by something scholars of the Constitution call a new Constitution, even though we didn't switch from the federal Constitution of 1788-89 to a new document like a Magna Charta II or something like that. The way we did in 1788-89, we switched from the Articles of Confederation, which we'd used from 1776 until that point, to a new federal Constitution. There was nothing like that. It was a mere amendment to the Constitution. We'd had 13 of them before this one that I'm calling the new Constitution. And this new amendment called the 14th Amendment is not like the other amendments. It's unlike them. It's suspicious, it's alien, it's foreign, and it does something that had never been done. It reversed the very point and meaning of the Constitution, which was the idea of subsidiarity, localism. Now it flip-flopped all that. So that's the proof. Whether you're a post-liberal and you don't like it when America stood for at the beginning, or you're on my side, there are other Catholics on my side, like John Smirak, Samuel Gregg, Jay Richards, 
um, the Acton Institute. Uh, there are people on my side. I, I've had a lot of these guys on my show. I think Trent Horn is on this side of things. There are plenty, but it's a kind of 85, 15, 90, 10 proposition. They have to deal with this first fact, okay? Whether or not you say America was good before the 14th Amendment and became bad at the 14th Amendment, like I do, Christian before the 14th and Masonic after it, like I do, or you say the, the reverse, that it was bad at the beginning and it was good afterwards, the way neoliberals say. It was good after the 14th Amendment because that righted slavery or racism or something. Um, either way, one simply cannot sidestep acknowledging that there's an inflection point. This alone is proof that the post-liberals are wrong. You can't go from bad to bad with an inflection point somewhere between 1788 and 2022. Here's the second proof. Maybe it's just a specification of the first proof. I've been on Twitter more, re more often than I usually am this week. The 14th Amendment accomplished all the stuff in modern America that the post-liberals, and I, and all faithful Catholics, we agree on this much, call tyrannical. The 14th Amendment accomplished all this stuff, mostly psychosexual, most, mostly sexual revolutionary by its nature. But we agree. This stuff is all bad. The ubiquitization of pornography the illegalization of illegalizing contraception. The universalization of sodomy and homosexuality. The forced legalization from the top of gay marriage. The forced legalization from the top of abortion. All of us agree. I agree with Adrian Vermeule. These things are all evil. That's five issues. Also, the big one. The big one as concerned my friend Jacob Imam and his conference today at the New Polity Institute. Can there be an integrated church-state thing? Can a government have an officially established state religion? Now, all of these people say, oh, hard separation of church and state is Masonic. They're right. Hard separation of church and state is what we live under today. It's a tyrannical regime. They're right. What they don't get is this sixth issue, in addition to all the five vices that have been forced to be universal, was, as a matter of plain fact, reversed by the 14th Amendment. So were all the five vices. From seven, This is my tweet, and this tweet is just a thread by thread, uh, recapture of what I wrote in my email to Jacob Imam before his conference this week. I, I said, hey man, invite me to these things. I'll travel. I wrote in the email and then the tweet, from 1791 until 1947. Put a pin in that year. It's the year America officially became evil. From 1791 until 1947, the First Amendment made it illegal for the national government to hinder the several states, that meant the 13 member states at the time that the Bill of Rights was ratified three years after the Constitution was ratified in 1788. It made it illegal for the national government, specifically the Congress, to hinder the several states' various establishments of Christianity. Eight out of 13 of the original 1791 states had official Christian establishments. 
most of the people in our state are Catholic, so we're going to be Catholic. There wasn't a Catholic state. Most of them are Congregationalists, we'll be Congregationalists. Most of them are Anglican, we'll be an official state devoted to this. Most of the United States were, had an official sect of Christianity. None of them were any other religion. We were a Christian country. They were official state establishments. The five who opted not to be were still mostly Christian. But the idea of the Constitution and the First Amendment was that, I repeat, it was illegal for the national government, go read the First Amendment, to hinder the several states' various establishments of Christianity. This should be blowing your mind. This is something that Jacob Imam, the good people that I've mentioned in this show who call themselves post-liberals, but they are pretty good Catholics, I think. It should be blowing their minds. We had integralism in America. It wasn't national integralism. It was federal integralism. Federal means state by state. The individual states are supposed to be able to choose, just like Pope's Pius's later on would say, this needs to be subsidiarian. We shouldn't have one national government, but the Congress is, it is illegal for the Congress to mess with the state-by-state -state establishments of Christianity. Official state government. Christianity. Now, of course, we want them to be Catholic, not Protestant, but that, that's a demographics issue. From, from 1947, the national government in a Supreme Court case called Everson versus Board of Ed, reversed the very essence, the very meaning of the First Amendment by interpreting it completely oppositely as requiring the illegalization of the several state establishments of Christianity. No more states are allowed to have establishments of Christianity. Now, seven of the nine justices on the Supreme Court were card-carrying members of the Masons, and just before the, the 1900s, before the turn of the century, they, the Freemasons, said their goal for America was to accomplish this. What ended up being accomplished in Everson versus Board of Ed. This is like taking a family rule, no candy before 6 p.m., and saying, this rule, I interpret it as meaning you must have much candy before 6 p.m. It's a total flip-flop. America was Christian before 1947, Masonic after 1947. Position A and position A prime cannot both be liberal at once. So what's going on? I'm not even sure how you, I said to Jacob, or anyone are defining liberal, as I said at the top of the show. But for the two most subject matter relevant popes on point here, Pius IX and Pius XI, the pre-14th Amendment status of America was comprehensively good. And they said so. So did Leo XIII. And the post-14th Amendment status of America was comprehensively bad. I will prove that to you as we go through this. But just let me, let me pause now for half a second. Porn was absolutely illegal in most states before. The 14th Amendment, jurisprudence made it illegal for the states to make it illegal. Same vis-a-vis -vis contraception, same vis-a-vis -vis sodomy laws, same vis-a-vis -vis gay marriage laws. That one's the most recent. You probably remember that Supreme Court usage of the 14th Amendment. Same vis-a-vis -vis abortion. We've been talking about that a lot the last six weeks, Roe versus Wade. All this is 14th Amendment jurisprudence. But all of this followed a couple decades at, in the sexual realm. All those five vices involve sex in one way or another. 20 years after 
the court became, the high court in this country became officially Masonic. Seven of nine justices in 1947. In the 1950s, it would become eight of nine justices were Freemasons. 1947 is when the Masons on the court reversed the meaning of the first that America should have in its state governments, which should vary state to state. That's what localism is. They should reflect whatever sect of Christianity officially established in the state government is there. That is in integralism. So people accuse me of being an opponent to the integralists. No, I just don't want one world government telling us what to do or one continent-wide government telling all of us what to do. Neither did Pius IX or Pius XI. I'm about to show you that. What I do want are miniature republics, which are called the states, that have integralist sects of Christianity reflecting their demographics. I am an integralist. Tell your friends. <laughs> okay? You know I don't say it if I don't mean it. I am an integralist. I am a pre-14th Amendment integralist, a pre-1947 integralist. Especially when we consider that the self-same 14th Amendment jurisprudence would comparably reverse, I'm saying comparably compared to what they did to state establishments, reverse the original subsidiarity of the 13 several states in other legislative ways relevant to this so-called liberalism debate. Namely, it would suddenly make it nationally illegal for states to illegalize porn in Stanley v. Georgia in the, in the late 60s. I should give you a year for each of these. Stanley v. Georgia. It's illegal now for any of the 50 states to illegalize porn. Contraception. It's illegal for any of the states to illegalize it in Griswold v. Connecticut, late 60s also. Illegal for any of the 50 states to illegalize sodomy. Lawrence versus Texas in the early 90s, illegal for any of the 50 states to illegalize abortion, Roe versus Wade, and same, illegal for any of the 50 states to illegalize gay marriage in Obergefell. All of those cases fell under 14th Amendment jurisprudence, which also made it now illegal for the states to have establishments of Christianity, which they had all along, most of them, and they were encouraged by the Constitution to have. Though The Constitution doesn't make state governments do things. That's subsidiarity. The Constitution leaves it up to the states to choose for themselves, but it encouraged the state legislatures to have an official establishment of Christianity. Is this new to you? Yes, it is. It's because people get stuff wrong. Groupthink makes people get stuff wrong. Most of the post-libs are professors. They cannot deal with these facts. Do you understand that? Gladden Pappen at the University of Dallas. Adrian Vermeule in the Ivy League. Fancy pants. Patrick Deneen, we have had a debate, and the entire debate on, on another channel, uh, he was backpedaling. He was like, hey, I don't want to debate. I, I, I like a lot of the things you're saying. Well, of course, but let's talk. Let's hone in on what we don't like. He's a faithful Catholic, so of course we agree about much. We don't agree about subsidiarity or the size of government. That's what we're supposed to be debating, and he backpedaled. Saurabh Amari now is not a professor, but he hangs out with all these professors, and he parrots what they say. Okay, they won't invite me to their conferences. And it's not because they don't know who I am or it's not because we don't engage behind the scenes. They don't handle the ideas and they're, it's either total nescience, which is morally okay. It just means ignorance. It's a nice way of saying ignorance. They don't know these things or they do know them because I'm interacting with a lot of them behind the scenes and they are being intellectually dishonest. That's not okay. By the way, they like the 14th Amendment the 14th Amendment reversed America. America was, hey, all of the muscle 
is in the states, the states, all of them, are like their own little government, and they should make all the important decisions, and they should be legislating morality. That was original America until the 14th Amendment and the Civil War, and the Civil War has to do with slavery, so, so there's at least some reason to make some change, even though they went overboard. I get it. I, I don't want to talk about slavery. It's not, it's not important now, and it's not interesting. But these people are all defenders of the 14th Amendment. They literally defend the 14th Amendment because they like overarching, globalist-style nanny state government. They just say, well, that's, that's leftist government. Yeah, porn, contraception, sodomy, gay marriage, abortion, and taking away the state establishments of religion. That's all what happens when you get a, a bad national government. We just want a good empire-style government. Well, that also is not Catholic, okay? And the way you prove it is by taking a look at the author of the Syllabus of Errors, who is Pius IX. Pius IX. This guy knows what's up. Um, whew. Let me read to you from this Civil War blog. Pius IX, the Vatican, Lincoln, and the Civil War. Let me read you a few sections from this, uh, this page. Civil War blog. Pius IX was born May the 13th, uh, Fatima Day, 1792 in Italy, and was chosen as Pope on June 16th, 1846. Author of Syllabus of Errors, we call him Pio Nono. His election came amidst the growing nationalistic fervor, which you're seeing on the right. Nationalism is better than globalism, but I don't call myself a nationalist because I'm a localist. Localism is better than nationalism, as nationalism is better than globalism. So, Pius IX took power amid the growing nationalist fervor that was taking place in Europe. And he was seen originally as liberal and sympathetic to the causes of the people and the faction of cardinals who wanted reforms in the church. But after that, after his rise to power, his minister of the interior was assassinated and he was forced to flee Rome for a short time, which led to his increasing skepticism of liberalism and nationalism. Now, you, listen to me here, listen good. You don't need this conjunctive word, and. Liberalism is nationalism, okay? Liberalism is one government that sweeps all in its way unto, into its dominion. That's liberalism. That's how Pius IX defined it. I'll, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. In the 1850s and 1860s, the Italian nationalist armies made significant gains against the papal states. In the 1850s and the 1860s, the nationalist liberals in Italy were working against the papal states, those territories over which the Pope was sovereign, finally resulting in 1870 in the seizure of Rome forcibly and Pius IX's confinement to Vatican City, a small territory within the city of Rome, you might have heard of it. And the Pope's self-declared epithet as the prisoner of the Vatican. Pio Nono, parish orphans and retrogrades, hated nationalism. Pio Nono hated, we're going to read about it in a second, the unification of Italy. He called himself a prisoner of the Vatican, prisoner to these liberal nationalists. When he refers to liberalism, he is not condemning subsidiarity. The term didn't exist yet. He is affirming it. Let's go on. 
I'll prove it to you. Despite the fact that he was besieged during his entire papacy, Pius IX is credited with major reforms in the Catholic Church. This is written for Civil War buffs, not Catholic buffs. The doctrine of, you guys know these, papal infallibility, good review though, papal infallibility, although an anti-democratic change came about as the result of a major democratic reform, the calling of Vatican I in 1869. It's not really democratic, but these are people who don't understand necessarily. The financing of the Vatican, the Roman Curia, and the works of the church was assured through the institution of Peter's Pence, a levy on Catholics throughout the world that replaced support previously given by the papal states because the papal states were forcibly subdued by the liberal nationalists in Italy. They were lost in the Italian unification. We're going to talk about that in a second. We're going to talk about Pius IX as he related his own situation to the unifiers when he dealt with the Civil War in America as it was going on. He saw Lincoln, the liberal, the unifier, the forced unifier, similar to the liberal nationalists in Italy who he hated. He really hated it. And the dogma of the Immaculate Conception which helped place Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the position of one of the paths to redemption and salvation, again for non-Catholics, was instituted by Pio Nono. These changes and reforms contributed to the centralization of power in Rome theologically. And in the papacy itself, these people don't understand that the Catholic Church wants a centralization of theological power in Rome, but not centralization of political power in the polities around the world. The changes were not without controversy, especially in how they were perceived outside the Catholic Church, and in particular, in how the papacy was seen in other countries. While the aims of Pope Pius IX were to ensure that Catholics could freely practice their religion in any country on earth, that was a big emphasis of the Pio Nono pontificate, he often ran afoul of political realities in places such as Russia and the Ottoman Empire. Okay, I don't really care about this. The educational policies of Pius IX were criticized in that they continued to neglect the natural sciences. He was a classical education guy. Now let's get to it. It was in the Americas and his attempt to meddle in the affairs of Mexico, technically in the Americas, that caused concern in Washington may have been directly responsible for the development of anti-Catholic sentiment in the United States. Generally speaking... The Confederates in the South were very friendly to Catholicism, and Pio Nono, the reigning pope, was very friendly to the Confederacy for conceptual reasons. For the reasons of liberalism, subsidiarity, although the term wouldn't exist until Pius XI. During the Civil War, the French supported Maximilian I, who, with the blessing of Pius IX before he set off for Mexico, attempted to establish the Second Mexican Empire. Lincoln, preoccupied with quote-unquote saving the Union, depending on your point of view, was unable to help the Mexicans or to stop what was clearly a violation of the Monroe Doctrine. The fact that this intervention was supported by the Pope was known at the time, and after the Civil War, the United States supported the Mexicans and Maximilian I was overthrown. Now, I don't really care about this stuff as much. It's not as important as what I'm about to say. Pope Pius IX was the only foreign ruler who gave any level of diplomatic recognition to the rebel government. Now, by recognition, he wrote Jefferson Davis and called him president. He wrote him very affectionately and called him president. All of the historical sources, I, I researched this nine months ago, all of the historical sources say 
that he very much identified with Jefferson Davis. He said, look, slavery is wrong. Same as I say. But Jefferson Davis has the right view of government. Small is beautiful. In that sense, he's a subsidiarian. The post-liberals seem to hate subsidiarity. They want big, liberal, nationalistic movement, like the unification of Italy, like Lincoln's unification of two separate republics in America that stood for very different things. The South stood for subsidiarity and, and slavery. That was, they're using it for slavery, which is wrong. Right idea, wrong usage. The North stood for liberal nationalism, forced unification, you know, globalism type efforts, being ruled by some uh, sovereign 5,000 miles away if you live in Honolulu. That is globalism. That is anti-Catholic. That's uncatholic. That is liberalism, according to Pope Pius IX. He's the only sovereign in the whole world that acknowledged fondly Jefferson Davis as president to a sovereign nation. People play this down and they say, oh, he's just being polite. Who are you to say? He wrote it. The letter's documented. There's a lore about him sending to Jefferson Davis once defeated a crown of thorns. This is a bit trumped up, but there was, uh, there was back and forth. And the crown of, I forget what the crown of thorns was. It, it was crafted later. But there was, the point is this. There's very much fellow feeling between Pius IX, who loved subsidiarity, that means local government. The Catholic Church says part of the state of nature is, it's not just a moral principle or a political principle, that you should be governed by your neighborhood or your polis. It's part of all three of the good regimes of government. It's part of nature. Man's not supposed to be ruled by one world government from uh, The Hague. Or from Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is just the Hague. It's one world government. They're supposed to tell us crop legislation about when to sow, when we can use water, when we can fertilize from 5,000 miles away. This is supposed to be done from someone in your town square, no further a walk than your neighborhood. That's subsidiarity. And we're going to talk about Pope Pius IX, the other Pius in a second, who affirms Pius IX. That's what it is. It's not only a moral principle or a political principle, it is a, embedded in nature that we are not meant to be ruled by a global-type government 5,000 miles away, Honolulu to Washington, D.C., Anchorage to Washington, D.C. It's nonsense. That's liberalism for Pope Pius IX, directly. A conspiracy theory, because there's so much feel, fellow feeling between, between Pius IX and the Confederacy, there's even a very popular conspiracy theory. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying it's evidentiary of the well-known putative closeness between Pius IX and the Confederacy based on subsidiarity, that kind of anti-liberalism. Emerged in the years after Lincoln's death that Pio Nono was somehow involved in the assassination in directing it or assisting in it and was fueled by a number of factors, not the least of which was that Mary Surratt, the convicted conspirator, who was hanged, and her son John, were wanted as, a, as Catholics. Okay. That's important. You probably didn't know that. So the syllabus of errors, which the, this author didn't even know about, important to CAD Catholics who are trads. Oh, we need to adhere to the syllabus of errors. 
When it is talking about liberalism, it is talking about liberal unifying nationalism, which contradicts what Pius XI would later call subsidiarity. Liberalism, out of the mouth of Pius IX, is, a, is any contradiction of subsidiarity. These guys, Sorbomari, et al., all the five post-liberals and, and 15 more, they regularly equate liberalism or post-liberals with subsidiarity. And they won't, Sorab won't respond to me. Subsidiarity is the governing principle of secular government that the church is willing to endorse. It's the one. And Pius XI says it in Quadragesimo Anno. It's the only place the church has ever endorsed the scope of government explicitly. And this document is uh, this document is part of the teaching voice of the magisterium. And it's the only place it's never been contradicted. He says, It is a grave evil for a faraway government to do what a nearer government has the capacity to legislate. It is a grave evil, a collective mortal sin to trump subsidiarity. We just saw Pope Pius IX identified liberalism as a trumping of subsidiarity, so he agrees with uh, Pius XI. I want to read to you another tweet that I made as, as I introduce liberalism subsidiarity from the perspective of Pius XI, who wrote about this stuff more explicitly. I, I really hope this is making sense to you. It's really important, and it's stuff in our past that is relevant because it affects our future. I called it many years ago in an article, 10 years ago now. I wrote a, an article, I've talked about it before, called a case, uh, Declaration of Grievances, where I'm saying, look, 1776 was a, was a war waged over a very small tariff on a breakfast beverage. These guys did not let you step on their toes, Jefferson and Adams and Washington. They were based. Look at our grievances compared to that. Abortion, capitation, income tax, forced uh, vaccinations, transsexualism forced on us, forced murder. What do you think is a more 1776 moment? If we're just doing the moral math, 1776 or 2022, I don't know what to do about it. I wrote this in 2012 when Obama was reelected. I wrote this halfway between then and now, five years ago, Catholic Republic. I make the case in this book. They still won't interact with me, the post-liberals, because they don't want to admit they're wrong. And if any of you have doubts, pepper me with questions, okay? But Pope Pius XI makes it utterly clear. It is a grave evil, it is a mortal sin to be legislated by Washington, D.C., if you're in Honolulu, Hawaii, when it's anything outside of Aquinas names three things that the faraway government should do. Tax for the support of the government and for wars, not for a police power of legislating morality. That should be up to the individual state, not for deciding what sect of Christianity you're going to have. That should be the individual states. Okay, so what we have to do is distinguish between consolidated government and confederated government. 
the Constitution, I'm not going to do a Constitution class now. I, I've run one. You can, you can take my Constitution class. Consolidated government is non-subsidiarity government. It's a continent-wide country where the orders come from the center. Contradictions of subsidiarity. And we have a little bit of that. Madison described the new Constitution as part consolidated, part confederated. Confederated government is subsidiarity government. It's when there, if there are 50 states... Then you have 50 sovereigns legislating. Is uh, porn going to be legal or illegal? Let's make it illegal. People call me very confused. People say this is libertarianism to stick up for subsidiarity. No. Libertarianism is political economy. That's how much are we going to regulate the economy. All I'm saying is subsidiarity requires that each of the 50 states can decide porn contraception for themselves. And they, they should legislate morality. A libertarian would never say that the state governments should legislate morality. Libertarians say never legislate morality. The Tenth Amendment says otherwise. There is a police power to legislate health, safety, welfare, morals, and security. It's just held by each of the several states. It's not held by the federal government. Do you understand the difference? A libertarian says you should never, ever tax. That should be up to the individual states what they tax on. Subsidiarity is not libertarianism, okay? I'm just making an argument for confederated government. The United States Constitution did have the germ of attempting to mix consolidated and confederated government and the consolidated government preponderated. So yes, that's a germ that was there all along, but it could have been done in such a way that things didn't get messed up. Pius XI said, Government should be confederated, if you were to use American terminology. The post-liberals literally say up is down. They say liberalism is the opposite of liberalism. And they say the opposite of liberalism is liberalism. They, and they won't engage this basic point. Do you understand how frustrating this is to a person like me who knows more about this stuff than I know about anything else almost? Liberalism, according to Pius IX, also Pius X, though he mainly defined liberalism theologically as modernism, and Pius XI, they all agree it's far-off governance, unification governance, like Lincoln's or like the Italian unifiers, hated by those who say we like localism, subsidiarity. I hope this has helped you to understand. The post-libs defend the 14th Amendment, which is what made it illegal to illegalize any of the vices that we actually want to legislate. Sora Bomari told me when he was debating Drag Queen Story Hour with David French, the following. He said, look, his position was, we should make it nationally illegal to have Drag Queen Story Hour. Again, global, globalism-style government. Washington, D.C. tells Honolulu it's illegal to do X, Y, and Z in Honolulu libraries, 5,000 miles away. That's globalism, my friend, half a world away. I said, look, I'm like you, Saurabh. I think these people should be in a mental institute. It's, they're basically pedophiles. Give them the death penalty. It should be totally illegal. But it should be made illegal the Catholic way, the subsidiarity way. And guess what? The 10th Amendment of the original Constitution, before the passage of the 14th Amendment, which I know for some reason you love, that does the trick. The 50 state legislatures should make it illegal. Give them the death penalty state by state for being a drag queen story hour participator. I'd love it. 
legislate that morality. Don't call me a libertarian on this front. He was debating David French, who is something of a confused classical liberal, semi-libertarian, not even in the what's good to offer from libertarianism, like Austrian economics. He said, look, nationally, Sorab says nationally, just make it illegal all at once. David French, when they were debating it three summers ago, said, no, nationally, it just has to be illegal even if you and I don't like it. They, he said, that's the most that you could do. You can't make it illegal to basically pedophilize, pedophile, to molest kids in public libraries with public funds. Can't make it illegal. And I went to Sorab and I said, look, man, I was behind the scenes and I was just like, 10th Amendment. It, it should be illegal. You have to do it state by state, though, where it's actually the people, because Thomas Aquinas and Bellarmine and Suarez all endorse the concept of popular sovereignty and all three of those thinkers. They endorse the people. Whether you have a king, an aristocracy, or a republic, it's the same. The people are the ones that God entrusts the law to, and they select whether they have a king, a few aristocrats, or a representative parliamentary congressional-style rule. They, for their own state, city, or neighborhood, and the smaller the better, they should be the ones to decide. And you know what Saurabh said to me? It, it reminded me of what Planned Parenthood versus Casey said when they punted on outlawing Roe versus Wade, 19 years after Roe versus Wade. He didn't say, no, that's wrong. Just like Planned Parenthood versus Casey didn't say that the anti-abortion people like us have the wrong jurisprudence. The 14th Amendment jurisprudence in Roe versus Wade is ridiculous. They just said, look, we can't do it. This is too inconvenient. Too many people have relied on the judgment of the court in the last 19 years, from 1973 Roe up until 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Too many people have relied on our bad judgment. It would be too inconvenient to now reverse course. They'd be left in the lurch. They'd be like, so we're murderers? Yes. So we can't reverse. That was the holding of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That's all they said. That's all Saurabh said to me. He said, man, I'm, you know, I work with the New York Post. I, I'm a New Yorker through and through. I don't want to move. Well, that's the very point. That's why subsidiarity, Saurabh, is not only a principle of politics or ethics, it's a principle of nature. You're saying you want to be a part of a republic, the Republic of New York, a little polity, even though the definition the church has always emplaced on polities and republics is that there's a res publica. This comes from Augustine. It means you share a point of view with the people that live around you. You don't have a republic unless you do. He said, look, I know I don't really live in a res publica in New York. These people are the liberalist in America, more liberal than California, more liberal than Hawaii. But I like living around tall buildings or whatever it is. So I don't want to move. And because I don't want to move, even if I have kids, I'm going to live in a place where it's legal to have Drag Queen Story Hour. I just want some globalist world government from thousands of miles away to come in and do my dirty work for me. And do, do it the un-Catholic way. Do it the way that, that strikes down subsidiarity. You see how it's a cheat? That's how it comes out. That's how it washes out. When you talk to these guys about, look, Get into a red state where you actually live in a republic. I know most of my neighbors are Baptists. They're not Catholic. But they all agree with me about all of this stuff. Gay stuff, tranny stuff, feminist stuff, Trump stuff, Biden stuff, Supreme Court stuff, abortion stuff. We have to work on them with contraception. Porn stuff. All of it. From the floor to the rafters, with the exception of contraception, 
but there's no state in the union. I'd, I'd move there if there was an anti-contraception state. From the floor of the rafters, without one exception, my Protestant neighbors live in a res publica with me. And that's why I moved here. That's why you should go to realestateforlife.org and get yourself to a real republic where you are not a queer $3 bill, where you are amongst people that, for the most part, agree with you, where you could have an establishment of Catholicism in the state legislature, state laws, state taxes, if you are around enough Catholics. That's the Catholic way. And, but see, that, that's an imposition. Saurabh doesn't want to have to move. He likes living in New York. He likes having four delis on every corner. He likes looking at the skyscrapes as he, whatever, descends the subway. He likes whatever that is, and he wants to have his cake and eat it too. Then he wants to be Mr. Catholic and say, post-liberalism, just give us a Catholic king. They know that's not going to happen. It is disingenuous. It is intellectually dishonest. It is un-Catholic. The Catholic way is always subsidiarity. Sarabamari all the integralist post-liberals, I'm an integralist subsidiarity guy. I've explained how. States should have establishments. They all are advocating against the church's teaching. They are all advocating for a grave evil, the grave evil of liberal nationalism. The way that Pius IX and Pius XI defined it. And by the way, they get to sound like extremists, but they're the ones that don't want to do anything. Relocate to a red state. What do I say to you guys all the time when I tell you, get to a red state like I did? It's a big move. It was scary in some ways. It was inconvenient in more ways. We're still in some boxes in our garage, by the way. We've lived here nearly two years. I, yesterday was the two-year anniversary of my firing, June the 3rd. But let me tell you something else. It's not the first step just to live in the republic with each other. That does make life a million times better. People are still flying Trump flags in my neighborhood. They drive around in golf carts. They're all conservatives. We all agree about everything except contraception and the, what is the true Christian sect. But there's more to it than that. If you guys would actually get off your butts and get to some red state, they're mostly here in the South, we'd be contiguous enough. And then as things continue to degrade and decelerate and accelerate toward the bad in the blue states, then we would be mobilized for whatever needs to happen next. Then we'd all be a broad, blood-red swath of, of red states. Like I'm always saying as I adver advertise for realestateforlife.org. You're, you're, it's better in the short term, middle term, and long term. In the short term, you're just living around sane people that you can go knock on their door and have them watch your kids for 10 minutes even if you don't know them that well, if you're in an emergency. Or borrow a cup of flour Trust that they have sane political opinions, which they do. I don't want to be living around a bunch of people that think Drag Queen Story Hour is good, even if the, some, some federal tyrant made it illegal. You, Sorab wants to live around a bunch of people that think Drag Queen Story Hour is natural and beautiful, but have had it proscribed by a Catholic emperor. You want to live around people like that? That's what you do if you live in blue states. It's unnatural. So that's the short term. But in the middle and long term, things are going to keep going downhill. America as a 50-state union, I said it for 10 years at least, is doomed. As it breaks apart, we want to be able to control, we want to be able to get out in front of the story. It's done, 50-state union. It's un-Catholic. It violates subsidiarity. It violates Montesquieu's three cardinal rules. 
it needs to come apart. It never should have been this big in the first place. Republics aren't continent-sized. That is the contradiction that was there in America from nearly all along. Jefferson, one of the great leaders of subsidiarity in America, he is the one that did this to us. He contradicted subsidiarity via the Louisiana Purchase. It's the worst thing he did. Should never have been one big nation. 13 states was too many. Each of the states should have been a little republic. 50, whatever Jefferson expanded it to, 38 is far too many. Doesn't need to be 50. I said we break it up into three or four. That's the long-term reason to get here. And I don't mean that long-term. I mean 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It's coming apart, baby. See, I, from, from the macroscopic view, from 50,000 feet above to the microscopic view where I'm looking at the surface of the land from 50 feet above, granular, granular to broad. I can zoom in and out and I can explain every step of the way. And this is why if any of these guys would ever come do a debate or have me at one of their conferences where you, I present a paper, I will change their worldview. And that's not bragging. That's not bluster. It's just this is how it works. And this is way less detailed than I could go on what Thomas Bellarmine Suarez, School of Salamanca requires, what Pius XI really said. If you get into the detail, he's very specific. Oh, we could get a lot more specific constitutionally too. These guys can't do it. That's why they won't have us. That's why they won't have me or Samuel Gregg, who's a genius, or John Zmirak at their conferences. They won't entertain fellow Catholics who don't dislike them at all. These guys say smart things in other arenas. They won't entertain our point of view where they know they're wrong. Post-liberalism is wrong. That's one thing you can take to the bank. And the solution to the past is in the future. The implications of the past are also in the future. That's why it matters so much. We need to collect ourselves, surround ourselves into red states because things are coming apart, which is the state of nature. Subsidiarity is nature. It's not just ethics and politics. Hopefully this helped clear it up for some of you guys. Ask questions in the comm box. Uh, yeah, let's, I'll address comments right now, as a matter of fact. Uh... In your imam interview, Jacob was not frustrated that he couldn't answer your question. He was frustrated that you weren't making the proper distinctions when talking about liberalism. Well, have I, I mean, if you're still here, Ryan, which pepper me with them right now. I, I, that, that's, that's not a, an actual comment. That is a, a broad sweeping statement. What distinctions? The distinctions I just showed you. Author of Syllabus of Errors, Pius IX was very specific in his condemnations of liberalism. Liberalism was nationalistic movements which swept all the local governments under one purview. And I agree with Pius IX. That's what I'm saying. The 14th Amendment and Lincoln and all of those other four presidents more known as leftists than Lincoln is, since Lincoln, was just like the Italian unification that Pius IX always called liberal. Liberal and nationalistic. Now, he was not a pope who wrote a document, an encyclical, specifically on what the church in all of its teachings requires. That would be two Piuses later. Not, not long afterwards, less than 100 years. Pius XI gave us the definition. He first used the term subsidiarity, where he said, it's a grave evil to advocate for the kinds of things that new polity is advocating for. Sorry. It's a grave evil. That's a direct quote 
for a faraway government to steal legislative fields, to use the constitutional term, from local governments as long as they're within its competence. Specifically, Pius XI says what the 10th Amendment specifically says. Legislating morality is one of the competent legislative fields of local government, never national government. That's what's evil. If you have a better or a more specific question, I'll entertain it. But... Uh, who do you identify as a libertarian theorist? Oh, oh man, this is... Well, liber- I mean, Ayn Rand is a libertarian. There are as many types of libertarian as there are libertarians. That's the problem. But remember, libertarianism is a political economy. I, I literally was corresponding with someone on Twitter yesterday, a fan of the show, who seems like a good dude, that was confusing libertarianism, a political economy, has nothing to do with anything we've talked about here today, with subsidiarity. That's a scope of government issue. The Catholic Church has very specifically weighed in on the scope of government issue, my friends. It says it doesn't matter whether you have... There are three good regimes, Thomas Aquinas says, right? Monarchies rule by one, aristocracies rule by a few, or polities republics rule by the many. All three of them are good. All three of them have corrupted forms depending on whether or not the common good is being served. That gets a little bit more amorphous. But the idea of the common good hinges around subsidiarity. Are people doing the good, legislating the good at the local level? You can do so under the king, right? The king did not tell you when to sow your crops, even in the Holy Roman Empire, Charlemagne was not violating subsidiarity. That's what you guys don't understand. So the church has weighed in. Now, now it's, it's not de fide, but it is a one notch under de fide teaching of the church that it is a grave moral evil to trump subsidiarity. Now, what I mean is the 50 states are supposed to be the labs of experimentation, like the late great Scalia said. That means that in the state of Mississippi, we could have a more protectionist political economy. The church doesn't say whether or not you should be more or less protectionist. That's political economy. That's boring. Our neighboring Alabama, who agrees with us about most things, could have a non-protectionist, a more libertarian political economy. The church doesn't weigh in on that, my friends. What the church does say, well, I'm first off just distinguishing, subsidiarity and political economy are not the same thing. The church cares about the former, not about the latter. Except at the extreme fringes. Was there another question? Well, the guy qualifies. Patrick Deneen notes your 14th Amendment point. Why do you say these guys are missing the point? Because he says, well, he might note it. What do you mean he notes it? Give me a direct quote, please. He, he might note it. He might note, what does that mean? There is a 14th Amendment. Generally speaking, anyone who favors faraway government as all of the names that I mentioned do, and they just say, let's just do a Catholic version of it. They are in violation of subsidiarity, and they, specifically the folks, there are Catholics who write for the Claremont Review of Books, are big champions of the goodness of the 14th Amendment. They're very specific about it. The 14th Amendment, in its jurisprudence, forced on the subsidiary states most of whom had it illegal before, porn, contraception, you know, all in specific case law that made it black letter law. Porn, contraception, abortion, 
gay marriage, sodomy, and it outlawed having integralized church-state establishments of Christianity. That's just a fact. They might note it, but if they're rooting for it as cheerleader, then noting it really works in the opposite direction that we need, isn't it? So go watch. It's on the Right on Point podcast, my debate with Deneen. He's very friendly. I mean, we agree about social stuff. He hates all the stuff, all those evils he hates. But somehow, he, he says his book is Liberalism Failed. But he's calling liberalism the opposite of what Pius IX, Pius XI called it. He's saying liberalism is subsidiarity. Subsidiarity cannot fail. That's my main point. And that's the point that these folks won't engage. Any other questions? Subsidiarity does not fail. It is a natural principle. It is not just political or ethical, as important as those two things are. It's like saying, hey, I have to go on a business trip. I'm the head of my family. I have to go on a business trip. Um, So I'm going to continue giving the kids orders by phone. I'm not going to hire a babysitter. That's a natural principle. Yes, it's political. It involves the politics of my home economy. Yes, it's ethical because it involves me giving what are mostly moral orders to my kids. But it's also natural. The state of nature and human nature is such that I, if I'm going away and Steph's coming with me, we got to get a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt or a friend to, to watch our kids, right? Subsidiarity requires close governance. It is a state of nature. Do you guys, can you see that? I don't understand what the hangup is. It is not natural to get marching orders or crop regulation orders from Washington, D.C. if you're in Honolulu. The church condemns it. It says that it violates nature, which it does. If I am traveling 5,000 miles by plane tomorrow, then I have to hire a babysitter for my kids if Steph's coming with me. That's a natural principle. I can't govern by placing a phone call and being like, okay, now you guys go get some cereal and eat breakfast. Okay, now watch the baby very closely. She's two weeks old. (laughs) It's subsidiarity. It is totally perverted and unnatural. And with all due respect, it shows the degree of brainwashing that anyone thinks that Washington, D.C. is capable of doing things that the Constitution in Article 1, Section 8 specifically says it can't. All they can do is prosecute foreign wars, coin money, build postal roads, under the comedy clause for the several states to use. The Tenth Amendment gives the police power. The real governing power, the several states, the labs of experimentation, and even several of the states are too big. Even California, Texas, Alaska, Florida, these states are too big to even be republics. A republic should be a polis, like a really, really small eastern, eastern seaboard state, like Delaware. That's a republic. Sparta, Athens... Rome before it expanded, a city-state, then, hey, it should be your neighborhood. Even more extreme, that should be your republic. Hey, we're having a vote on, uh, I don't know, Drag Queen Story Hour tonight. All right, me and all my Mississippian neighbors will we'll get our lassos and our, and our, and our guns, and we'll, we'll all show up. We'll let you know how we feel, right? Yeah, our pitchforks and our burning stick things, whatever those are. Torches. Torch, like... We'll show up. Yeah, we'll show up. What's, what time is it at? We'll all take our golf carts over there. We'll be walking over there like, like 
walking to the park, the local park, to see fireworks on the 4th of July. You see your neighbors. This is a polity. This is how government works. We'll let you know what we think about this. Popular sovereignty endorsed by Aquinas and all of the Catholics since him. That's a republic. The idea of getting marching orders from three, four, five thousand miles away is disgusting. It violates nature. And it's condemned by Leo the Thirteenth, Pius the Ninth. It's implied by Pius the Tenth, but Pius the Eleventh most specifically. I don't know why we're debating it so much, but I do. I actually do. It's strong brainwash in this country after the Civil War. That's what it is. Conservatives, even at the conservative colleges, they won't have you read the anti-federalist papers who are debating the federalist papers. They'll only have you read Federalists 10, 39, and 51 at Claremont, Claremont College or, or Hillsdale College, the most conservative secular institutes in the land, right? They only have their students read the federalist papers. And I know because I, I went to Claremont for a short while as a grad student. Trust me. Trust me on this one. I'd love the more specific your questions are, the better. But I'm not mischaracterizing the other side. They're defending the 14th Amendment, which is the enemy. Does subsidiarity mean break up of big countries, or can it be practiced with large, diverse countries? No, no. Large, diverse countries. You have to go into theories of representation. There's something in 19th and 18th and 19th century political theory called virtual representation happening around the English Civil War, even the 17th century. Is virtual representation real? Maybe from, you know, a, you, you can have three cities which are 100 miles apart and you can be virtually represented in a small state like West Virginia and you can call all of those part of the same republic. But no, it doesn't work for a continent-sized, for a continent. There's no such thing as a continent-sized republic. Montesquieu, who was a Catholic political thinker, even though he fell out of the faith until his deathbed reconversion, he had three cardinal rules for what a republic must be. The third one isn't important here. That's political theory. But the first one is it must be univocal to be a res publica, meaning you must have the same morality and religion among all the members. Diversity is a sham. You can't have, I don't care about ethnic diversity nearly as much sort of important, not nearly as important as religious and moral unicity. You, you have to have religious and moral unicity. To have a club, a comic book club, you have to have all the members of the comic book club love comic books. Does that make sense? You don't want to get your jock buddy that doesn't know anything about comic books in your treehouse comic book club. That's what religion and morality are. They are the res publica. That's rule number one of Montesquieu for republics. Rule number two, cardinal rule number two is, in order to keep the club ideologically tight, you have to keep the club demographically small. How do you, how do you tend the goal of the ideology of the res publica in your club? You're like, I don't want this getting too big. Then it's going to be people that are half-assed, that don't really believe it, that are just pretending to believe it. Then you're going to be telling me about big tent Republican Party nonsense. Mitt Romney style stuff. Oh, let's, these, let's let these people in. They just started. They, 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 they bought their first comic book yesterday. Can't they be in the club? No. This is for serious, and I never read comic books, comic book aficionados. To keep it tight ideologically, you keep it pure and small demographically. So republics must be small. All of the republics, the founding fathers, as they debated this, 
particularly at Richmond, Virginia, in June of 1788, when they were saying, is this a good or a bad constitution? Should we ratify? All of these future presidents and future statesmen from Monroe to Richard Henry Lee to Edmund Randolph, they all knew the history of republics. They said, look, from little Venice, which was a republic, which lasted a thousand years, to the Swiss cantons, which lasted 1,200 years, to the English Republic, which had lasted about 700 years, to little Malta, to even the Vatican City, which was sort of a republic. They were all small and ideologically tight. That's a republic. Continents are continents. What is a continent? It's a big block of land floating in the ocean, not really floating, that is, was never meant to be a res publica, you have been brainwashed in this way by, by conservatives as well as liberals. And the conservatives mainly in the realm of this brainwash are the West Coast Straussians and the post-liberals and those calling themselves an integralist. Though now I've showed you, I am a, a kind of an integralist. I'm a subsidiarian integralist. The states, according to the original constitution, all of us are supposed to be integralists. The states should have their own sect of Christianity. The First Amendment encourages it strongly and disallows, makes it illegal for Congress to interfere with the state establishments of Christianity, which it did in 1947 by saying up means down. That's what you get when you get Masons on the court. Tell your friends, tell your integralists and post-liberal friends, if they want to debate, come here. America's Masonic now. It has been since 1947. It was Christian from 1788 to 1947. God bless you guys. To better days in America. Deus Volt. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb.